The Business of Caring is a groundbreaking new series within the Tell Me More podcast that's dedicated to exploring the synergies between compassionate patient care and business excellence. With her expertise as a highly celebrated internal medicine physician and founder of Christine Meyer, MD and Associates, Dr. Meyer has built a thriving practice with over 20 providers, 20,000 patients, and growing. Her success is a direct result of putting incredible patient care first, and each episode of The Business of Caring explores the profound impact of prioritizing patient well-being on overall practice success. For those that love our traditional Tell Me More podcast format, don't worry, it's not going anywhere. After all, amazing patient care starts with learning directly from patients by speaking with them and hearing their stories, and will continue to deliver Tell Me More podcasts on a regular basis through this channel. It's all part of our unwavering effort to help healthcare professionals build trust with patients and improve health outcomes simply by having better conversations. And now here's your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More. This week, we are featuring an episode on our Business of Caring segment. And I am just blown away and honored by today's guest. Uh, it is Dr. Yuval Bar-Or. He is an esteemed professor at Johns Hopkins University Carey School of Business. Uh, he's authored many books. And today we are very specifically talking about his book, The Pillars of Wealth. Thank you very much, Christine. It's a pleasure to be here. So, I mean, honestly, I don't fangirl very often because I'm old and I've seen and met very cool people in my time, but I am seriously fangirling over you because, as you may know, I started my own practice 19 years ago and any financial information I had came by way of pretty much disastrous mistakes. So first, something went horribly wrong, and then I was like, hmm. I need to not do that again. But here you are, an expert, and arguably, you know, honestly, like the only one I know or have heard of that does your type of work. So for those of us that are not familiar, just tell me in a nutshell what exactly it is you do. No, I'm a uh, professor of business, specifically finance, at the Carey School uh, at uh, Johns Hopkins, as you mentioned. And uh, about 10 years ago, I created the, an initiative that was aimed at educating physicians in, in skills, typically business-related skills, business and finance skills, that they obviously were not getting in uh, during their residency or undergraduate medical studies. I should also mention that I grew up in a medical family, so for me, this was very personal. I watched uh, family members struggle. I watched extended family members struggle with some of these decisions. So um, that's what led to ultimately to, to wanting to do this. And uh, it is unique in that most of the, uh, I'm using uh, air quotes here, most of the education in this space over, in this space over the last few decades has been offered by people who, who offer free uh, knowledge, uh, but they're really trying to sell things because they're typically financial advisors, insurance brokers, agents, and so on. And so they, of course, have a hidden agenda, or sometimes not a hidden agenda, just conflict of interest, uh, in that they're purporting to provide education, but really they're thinly veiled marketing efforts. So mm -hmm. uh, my response to that has been to, hey, let's do this as an educator who is not selling anything other than the knowledge, and uh, let's also ground this in science. So there, there are um, peer-reviewed uh, journal articles 
in this space. And uh, I'm involved in, in producing some of those. Wow. So, I mean, I think you said some of the magic words there, grounded in science, because I think doctors inherently, that's what they care about. They want to see evidence. They want to understand where this um, education is coming from. And you're right. I mean, I know for us personally, if we got any financial counseling over the years since we've had our own practice, it's been from the guy who sold us our life insurance policies, uh, the guy who, you know, created our kids five to nine accounts. And not, and honestly, I feel fortunate. Like we've not, I don't think we've gotten bad information, but when it comes to the business of medicine, the business of caring, starting a business, sustaining a business, making it a financially successful business, we have zero. I mean, I was just talking to a doctor who said, uh, He's very funny. And he was talking about how we spend so much time memorizing the Krebs cycle. Well, who cares? I literally never use that ever in the course of my day. But to have some financial, even the basics would have been so helpful. So can you tell me what you would call the most basic financial principle that you feel doctors are universally sorely lacking? Uh, just to uh, make sure I'm answering your question precisely, do you want this answer in the personal finance realm or in the business of running a practice realm? How about both? I'd love to hear both. Uh, so let's start with the uh, business uh, practice area. Um, and unfortunately, it can be a long list. Um, <laughs> this probably to both realms. Uh, so one of them you touched on in that the people, they don't have exposure to this, so they're not really learning uh, in these areas or developing uh, intuition appropriately. But the main thing in the, is in the business section, and you also touched on that, is that the, re the doctors receive no business and management skills. Doctors are also often encouraged to be very self-sufficient, uh, which means that they're not getting as much practice in collaboration and teaming with others. Uh, we're also in a an environment where it's very difficult to retain, to find and retain good good people, good people to work and staff medical practices. And so those management skills, the people skills, the emotional intelligence uh, mm -hmm. are, are crucial because you want people to feel that they're adding value, that they're appreciated, that they're contributing to a practice in order for them to stay because it's a real it's a real problem to replace people. I have to train them, find them and train them and retain them. So uh, those are already some items. I did uh, warn you that it's a long list. <laughs> no. Feel free to cut me off and, and redirect at any point. Uh, but I, so I can keep going or, or I can. Please. So, so it's interesting. So since we started talking about the practice pillars and we'll get to the personal ones. Um, so when I started my practice, as I said, I knew nothing and, you know, made so many mistakes. And that's how I, you know, would pivot and, you know, but so much time was lost. And I feel like if doctors had a little information, maybe we could save some mistakes. And more importantly, for me personally, I'm on this mission to encourage doctors to stay independent. You know, so many doctors are gobbled up by hospital systems, private equity now, because it's just easier. You know, uh, it's much more financially stable to know you're going to get a paycheck, you're going to get your vacation time, you're going to have, you know, great benefits and not worry about those financial missteps. So, do you think, first of all, in this day and age, 
do you think it's really practical, reasonable, possible for doctors to start their own medical practice? The short answer is yes. There, there is still room for people to bring uh, their expertise and their unique personality uh, to providing med- medical care. So I, I do absolutely believe that it is harder, possibly harder than ever before, and that there are so many regulatory um, requirements which are costly and time-consuming, uh, and they take up a lot of attention. But it is possible, and obviously there are physicians such as yourself who really feel it's your life mission, and it's important for you to do that. So you get a lot of satisfaction from from being in that circumstance where you get to decide what gets done, and uh, and you control your own destiny. So I, I again back to the short answer, yes. Um, but it does mean that uh, those practices have to be efficient. They have to be uh, run well, which brings us back to, I guess, earlier part of the conversation, which is that means having the skills right off the bat to um, to be able to succeed. And, and one of the easiest ways to do that, we know we could talk about what background, what sort of preparation could be useful. But one of the easiest ways to do this is to work in someone else's private practice for a few years mm. and uh, and learn what it's like. And then start one one's own practice two years later or five years later when you you understand what it takes and you understand what the importance of things like cash flow and the importance of of billing and following up on billing, things that uh, if you're not taught those and not drilled into you, you're not aware. And then you're six or twelve months into your own practice and and you're underwater because there's so many things you didn't you weren't prepared for. So being prepared is, is certainly a key. Wow, that's such a, I love that you said that because that's exactly what happened to me. Out of residency, I joined a practice of four older doctors and that practice was run so poorly. And I remember the moment that I was like, no, I got to do this. I could do this better. It was when it was back in the day when we didn't have electronic medical records and we still had folders and they would buy the cheapest possible folders. They were like, you know, a piece of construction paper folded in half, basically. And every time we would pull a patient chart, like papers would just go everywhere. We'd spend more time picking up pieces of paper. And I approached them and I said, hey, let's get sturdier folders with little clips in them, right? And they looked at me like I had two heads. They were like, what? That's going to cost us, you know, like 10 cents more a folder. Absolutely not. So I remember thinking like, no, there's got to be a way to, you know, understand that if you spend a little money, you're going to make it back in efficiency and ultimately the quality of care you provide to patients, which is what we care about. So, so yes, you know, practice first, see what it's like, make sure that you have that fire within you. Cause I think if you're not passionate about it, you're doomed. Um, so what about that specific piece Yuval? the spending money to make money. I think doctors notoriously are so bad at that concept. I'm married to one. My husband is a pediatrician. And every time I make a business decision that involves spending money, he falls off his chair until, you know, it comes to fruition down the line. But do you find that is a common um, area where doctors struggle, the idea of spending money first? It, it certainly can be. Uh, there are people, including physicians, who are, have no problem spending money, and that actually is a problem for them, uh, personally and professionally, because they may see shiny machines that they think, "Hey, that would look <laughs> cool in, in in the office at the practice." So they they shell out three hundred thousand dollars for those machines, not realizing that they don't have a business plan for how 
that is going to earn the money to pay off the machine and then some mm-hmm. profit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, another problem is they don't recognize the total cost of ownership. They don't realize that they pay 300000 up front, but they're going to have to pay another 20% of that every year just to maintain that machine and then get the inputs for it. So the, broadly, we think of you know, there are good investments and bad investments. There, there are there are circumstances in which or opportunities in which we spend money and don't get the money back. And that, of course, uh, is a bad thing. But there are others, and these are the ones we should identify and pursue, are the ones where we spend money and get more back. That's the name of the game in business to to some extent and certainly in finance. And that uh, is an important uh, you know, overall uh, paradigm that we need to ensure that, that we're living within, where every decision to shell out some cash. So uh, the, the, obviously the tricky part is figuring out uh, what is going to be the return. Is this going to be a sufficient return on the amount of money that's going to be spent? And, and that's where you data can really, really help. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So it sounds to me like you have had experience with those big, huge upfront investments that ultimately don't pay off for doctors. So I my practice is a primary care practice. So we are not a procedure driven practice. You know, the most expensive piece of equipment I have, you know, maybe my computers, maybe like a $2,000 EKG machine, you know, in the world of business and multi-million dollar uh, practice is relatively small. Um, how would you counsel a doctor to create that business plan? You know, a doctor who doesn't have financial sense before signing on to get the x-ray machine or, you know, the MRI machine or one of those super expensive bits of equipment. What, how do you even go about doing that? Business planning is, is crucial. And it's yet another skill we can add to that list that one of the items we didn't touch on in answer to one of your earlier questions, but having uh, the ability to plan ahead is crucial, whether it's the, the business plan that kicks everything off the actual practice or a plan to invest in something else, whether it's a machine or expanding the practice and so on. So that early preparation is crucial. And it's 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 one of those things in life where going through the process of thinking about the planning is, is as important as the actual result, the actual um, ink on paper result mm-hmm. of the plan, because we learn so much as we go through the process. And uh, really, I would say that the prevailing theme and everything we're talking about here is that is the lack of knowledge, right? That it's a huge disadvantage for, for physicians uh, as they are released from there, they complete their uh, residency or fellowship program, then they're unleashed on the world. And there's so much they don't know in terms of life skills, business skills, and so on. So uh, going through the process of a plan is crucial. And, and when I say that, I mean actually committing it to writing, because until we force ourselves to write it down, until we force ourselves to look up the numbers, what realistic return will I get on that investment, on that new machine, or on expanding the practice, adding a room? Mm-hmm. So until we think about the numbers and we can actually see them black on white, we don't really know whether it's going to be profitable or whether it's going to be profitable enough. So uh, in keeping in mind that uh, I cast this as, as important education because there's so much we don't know. But all of this would be reinventing the wheel because it is known. I mean, all, all of these questions about, you know, is it more, you know, should I expand the, the practice by another 100,000 square feet or should I get this machine? Numbers to help us make those decisions do exist. And probably others have struggled with some of these decisions. So in, in this age of internet connectivity, simple searches often will, will get us to information that others have, have struggled with and grappled with and solved. So that we we really don't need to wallow in this sort of helpless ignorance. 
there's lots we can do. It, it requires time and it requires effort, but it can ensure that that when we put together our plan, it's reasonably well thought out and quantified so that uh, we're not just jumping in blindly. And then we have the answer to the question, will this be profitable and our husbands are not falling off the <laughs> So you you said you listed several examples there. One of them particularly like got me. So about, I don't know, 10 years or so into my practice, we had bought a building and we had, you know, outgrown that building. And it was a great thing, you know, huge patient volume, more clinicians, you know, success. And so it was time, I thought, to expand. Um, and so we decided to buy another building. And here's where, you know, not having information would have, it was just not good. So uh, I knew that I needed more clinicians in order to justify this multi-million dollar purchase, right? And so I thought I was doing the right thing. I found the doctor who would at least fill enough space for us to break even. And the idea was don't lose money on the building. And over time, eventually it will be full and it will be profitable. Here's where the people management skills failed me. And I'm sure you can speak to this. I hired the wrong person. I bought the building, found the person. She was a dud. And one year into a 30-year mortgage on a multi-million dollar business, I had an empty building and, you know, just massive money hole. So can you speak to that, Yvonne, how that people management, people identification, judgment, uh, coupled with <laughs> this need to expand can be disastrous. Absolutely. And I'm guessing that uh, the audience have probably heard of or even experienced uh, similar outcomes. So uh, yes, we, we sometimes do encounter these disasters. Some of it is avoidable. Some, of course, is not. The, you know, we, we can uh, uh, do as much due diligence as we can. And sometimes still people fail us. They turn out to be duds or, or circumstances fail us. Uh, in this particular case, and of course, I'm not familiar with the circumstances, but um, one might speculate that uh, in advanced planning, it would have been useful to say, okay, what are the dangers? What are the risks? And typically, right. we, we, we have a risk management section in the business plan, what could go wrong. Mm -hmm. And then we list all the major things that could go wrong. And sometimes they're uh, they're financial, and sometimes they are operational, as we might call them. And uh, the operations have to do with people's errors and or uh, software glitches and things like that, and also things like fraud, etc. But so the the risk management world is a very uh, well developed and mature industry, and and they've got lots of templates on on questions you can ask about different types of activities to identify risk. So it, let's assume we had done that, gone through that process diligently. Uh, we probably would have realized that, okay, well, all this success, this entire new building to be staffed and, and equipped and run is now hinging on this one person. Right. Are we 110% sure that this is the right person? And um, so I, uh, ideally, going through the process and thinking through and committing those observations to writing would make it clear that, okay, we have to make sure that this person is absolutely ironclad, that they are not a dud. <laughs> and then time presumably would have been spent on, on ensuring that that happens. Yeah. Um, so and another thing is that uh, once you, because a lot of these things, especially in small practices, do hinge on individuals. Another version of this question is, uh, forget another building, but in your own building, in your primary building, do you have an office manager who's effective? 
Uh, do you have an office manager you trust? So we always have this issue of as soon as we are not doing everything ourselves, as soon as we're delegating <laughs> to others and collaborating, there's always that risk that they will let us down for you know, for yeah. legitimate or, or non-legitimate reasons, mm-hmm. uh, because they're ill or you know things happen. Um, and so an important uh, thing we can do there, and it's not always easy, is to try to cross-train people so more people can do their job. And that way, if that person uh, is no longer there for whatever reason, they quit, they're ill, et cetera, someone else can do it. It's hard to do. Uh, obviously, in the circumstances you described, that's much harder to do. But uh, identifying that there's that risk might have helped to um, to spur more examination and investigation to ensure that that person, in fact, can and will handle the load. And, and that's hard to do if we haven't had a lot of experience really thinking carefully about other people's skills and are they up to the task? Because it's another one of those life's learned skills that, that we often learn the hard way. Oh, exactly. I mean, honestly, even if I had just tried her out for a bit instead of, you know, committing to the building and then (laughs) sticking her in there. I mean, there are so many ways that could have gone better. Um, You mentioned the practice manager, uh, and I want to talk a little bit about the the staffing question. And then I want to get to the personal finances that doctors experience, even employed doctors, because I think that would be super helpful. Um, So for the first, you know, 15 of my 20 years in my own practice, I did not have a practice manager. I was the practice manager. I did everything. Um, And I was under this illusion that that was better, that I had my hands in everything and I understood the ins and outs of everything. But my time was not well spent. You know, my time spent seeing patients would have been much more financially appropriate. And not just that, it's what I do. I didn't go to medical school to manage people and hire and fire and make sure the carpets got cleaned and, you know, all that stuff. Um, So why do you think, and this is sort of a psychological thing, but it seems like you have experience with doctors. I'm going to ask you, why do you think doctors struggle so much with the idea of delegating that sort of thing to someone else? I imagine there are several reasons uh, we could get really deep into psychological uh, analysis here, which we are not going to do. I'm <laughs> uh, certainly not qualified to do that. But I think like many other people, but in particular type A personality physicians, we know we can do the job and we know we can do it better. And as we get glance around, we realize that we we probably can do it better than anyone else who's mm-hmm. around us. And so it's natural to just want it done well. And uh, so that's uh, one obvious interpretation. Uh, or explanation for that. Uh, and um, that, of course, is dangerous because as you identified, you're, you're good you're good at and want to do the doctoring. And it's much more efficient if you can find someone reliable to do the other things, make sure that the place gets cleaned, make sure that the accounting gets taken care of and so on. Another uh, reason why people may prefer to keep uh, things close is financial. They just feel that they can't afford at that stage uh, to pay someone else to take on those tasks, and that that could be legitimate. Um, so th- there are several potential reasons why we have that dynamic, but it is important, especially if you want to grow. So if you want to be a one-person practice and have your little little office that's manageable uh, and see patients, in particular, if you don't need uh, to do procedures and so on, then that that is doable potentially. But if you want any sort of growth, if you want to reach any sort of critical mass, you have to delegate because you you have to recognize that there's efficiency and specialization. As we said, you do the doctoring because you're really good at that and you want to do that. 
and you let other people who are good at, at managing an office do that. And that's a completely reasonable and, in fact, desirable outcome if you want to be able to grow, if you want to be able to scale. The challenge, of course, and this brings us back to the example you provided, is that sometimes those people let us down. They turn out to be nuts. <laughs> so, um, uh, and I think you also provided the solution potentially to that circumstance, the the, the tragedy, the, the uh, uh, disastrous one you described, but also this one about you know office manager is bring the person in and agree that they're going to be on on board for three months and you're going to kick the tires on them and and uh, uh, that that there will then be a decision of of go or no go and uh, you get three months or more I mean you could make it a one year contract or whatever one wants to begin with and uh, that's an opportunity for you for the two of you to grow together for you to see what they're capable of doing. And uh, either providing some of your time for training them or deciding they're not the right person. Uh, but the, the best case scenario is you you know that you then know enough about that person to make a solid, comfortable, happy decision to keep them on, uh, or you've learned that they're not the right person and you just repeat the process with someone else. Uh, so it's slower than just jumping in. But right. linking back to your example, it's certainly safer than the million dollar building sitting there empty. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a common theme uh, of the advice you're giving him all is just slow down, you know, take the time to do the research, create the business plan, figure out the return on the investment, hire the right person, kick the tires, as you said. I mean, it all comes down to being patient. And uh, those of us that are type A, let's go, let's go, let's go. That's a hard thing to do. But it seems like, especially in finance, it's critical. So let's shift gears and talk about personal finance production. Let's say, you know, you are an employed doctor. And, you know, I'm going to pull the curtains back a little bit for patients who may listen to my podcast and say, yes, doctors are very fortunate. In general, we ha we have financial security. Uh, we make a fair wage for what we do. Uh, we will always be employable unless AI takes over. But we also struggle with the same things that, you know, other people struggle with, you know, saving and buying a house and, you know, putting our kids through college. So, Yvonne, do you think, well, what would you say in the world of personal finance do you think doctors struggle with the most? Wow, another long list. One of the earliest uh, presentations I did on this subject, I was asked to do a presentation on uh, the 10 biggest mistakes physicians make. And I, I sat down and within 14 minutes, I had 28 items. Oh my God. It's a really, really long list. But uh. so, and we could do an entire podcast on that, I'm sure probably several. Uh, there are, are several items fundamentally or, or um, examples that uh, physicians tend to be pretty bad at. <laughs> uh, one of them is that they uh, can act impulsively. Mm. That's something that all of us are susceptible to when it comes to, to financial decisions in particular. And it's important to note that the, the professionals in this space, the people who sell us products and services, they know exactly which buttons to press in humans in order to elicit that impulsive purchase, whether it be life insurance or disability insurance or an investment product. So uh, physicians, uh, because they have less time, and they may be type A personalities who just want to charge ahead and check the box off and say, okay, I've done that. I'm moving on to other things or back to seeing patients. Um, physicians often will act too quickly. As soon as someone walks in the door and they, they think they can trust, uh, they'll just go with that person. 
and uh, or they'll go they'll listen to that person and uh, and go ahead and make an impulsive decision. So it is important there also to slow down and think about okay, uh, let me make sure that I this is all settling in for me. Uh, one of the things that often uh, the salespeople will do is they'll use either greed or fear to sell something. So mm. by greed, I mean they'll talk about all the great positive returns that one can get on an investment, but they conveniently don't talk about the risk. And so we get drawn into the <laughs> sales funnel and we think, oh, this is fabulous. I can't wait to tell all my friends about how much money I've made. And we sign on. And of course, mm-hmm. it, it never turns out to be as good as it looked uh, initially. The other way is to use fear. And, and you know, they'll quote uh, insurance brokers or agents in particular, they'll, bro- they'll quote lots of statistics about injuries and deaths and so on. Mm-hmm. That sell us too much insurance. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. against insurance. I have some myself. I recommend getting it. But it's very easy to get caught up in flattery and other things that make us buy far too much insurance or various bells and whistles we don't need. So that's one of the main cautions is to, to be aware of our own impulsive nature and recognize that the pros in this space, they know a lot more about the human psychology and how to sell to us than you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. So uh, you don't want to let them get through their sales pitches uh, and really, really get going on those things. Wow. That's so great. I mean, uh, yes. I lay awake at night sometimes thinking I am underinsured and I have a huge life insurance policy and I'm sure what you would consider an inappropriate disability insurance policy (laughs) that I spend a lot of money on, but I do, it's exactly that. It is a fear, you know, especially when the physician and the household or both physicians are the primary breadwinners, uh, there's a lot of fear in not being able to take care of our families should we not be able to do this job. So that is a wonderful caution. Um, have you learned, have you learned any lessons from doctors that you've counseled that you're like, oh, this is something that I want to pass on to other doctors? Has there been an instance where you think a doctor actually did a pretty good job? Yeah, of course. Uh, doctors do a lot of things well. And uh, in particular, they learn well. So once they've been uh, burned, <laughs> your personal experience, of course, they remember that they're very intelligent people, and they're able to then uh, use that. So, so absolutely, one of the um, bits of advice that was shared with me—in fact, I got it from both directions—but I'll describe the physician's perspective. Is physician saying to me that uh, for a long time, uh, what he did was he he went to his friends when he when he needed advice, he went to his peers, and um, he had an accountant who who counseled him and repeatedly told him things, but he would only do what the accountant said if his peers agreed. Mm. And after a while, he realized that that was not the most constructive path because, in fact, his peers, while very well-intentioned, good friends and so on, were not accountants. And um, while I I encourage people to be as self-sufficient as you possibly can when it comes to personal finance, I always warn them to not try to moonlight as accountants or attorneys. (laughs) So those are bodies of knowledge that we can't pick up in 10 hours Mm-hmm. Of, uh, of, of reading a book. So mm-hmm. uh, you want to listen to those pros. Uh, that's why you're paying them. So use the advice they have because they've been doing this for a long time. They've done this and seen this across dozens or hundreds of practices or individual financial plans. And they know what works and doesn't work and what's realistic and what isn't. Whereas you have seen your household and maybe one other, and you've got a couple of friends who are not really telling you fully about their circumstances. They might be telling you 10% of their circumstances. So the advice they're giving you may not even really be applicable to you because you don't know what 
what it looks like in their shoes and they don't really know what it looks like in your shoes. So some of their advice may simply be wrong. Mm -hmm. That's another, uh, there's, that was, I think a really, really uh, important observation and realization by that particular physician. And I mentioned, I've heard in both ways because I've also gone and spoken to account uh, to attorneys and accountants in researching the book. And uh, that's precisely what they say. They say, you know, we're, we're, we we work with tons of physicians, but uh, they make our lives difficult because they don't listen <laughs> to advice. They don't come prepared. They don't bring the the documentation that's needed. They don't take it seriously. They're on their phones constantly, and then we have all these complications because we we put into motion decisions that we think we all agreed on, and they say, "Wait a minute, why did you do that?" And well, we were together and we agreed to do this, and the physician doesn't remember because the physician was on the phone um, doing different things. So uh, there are a lot of a lot of things that, that uh, I guess we could add this to the list of, of things mm-hmm. physicians could do better as well. I did want to mention one other crucially important item, uh, really two, uh, just to complete the previous answer, because I just, the uh, OCD in me just feels mm-hmm. like I have to say this. Please. So, um, and that has to do with uh, mistakes that physicians make and, and avoidable ones are not being aware of fees that are associated with mm. the various financial planning elements, uh, because those can be really, really bad for us. And, and uh, often we'll see things characterized, oh, there's just 1% fees annually. And we think, oh, 1% is nothing. They've promised me 10%, 14 16% returns. 1% is nothing. But 1% actually is kind of devastating. And there are various, uh, you don't really need complicated math. I've done this myself. I know I've got other, there are other um, uh, people who have done this, uh, other scholars who've repeated these calculations. But uh, just to give us a quick example, if you were investing for 30 years and uh, you had a a choice of doing this yourself or paying someone 1% to do it for you, over that 30-year period, if you pay someone 1% annually to do the work for you, you are giving up 15 to 20% of your accumulated nest egg over 30 years, which is hopefully shocking for people. Really? Oh, my God. Which seems really small. Many of us, if we're not paying attention, are paying closer to 2%. And this is where people what? will fall off their chairs. Wow. At 2%, you're losing 35 to 40% of your nest egg, which is oh my God. It's, it's It's crazy. So, so fees are crucially important, and we really need to zealously reduce those fees as much as we possibly can and not dismiss them because they look small. And then um, there was one uh, other item I wanted to touch on, and that was, uh, in addition to the fees, uh, recognizing that procrastination is actually really bad in the world of finance and investing. So you don't want to sit there with hundreds of thousands of dollars in your uh, checking account or savings account. You need to commit those funds to something so that they're working for you. Mm. And uh, I say that from personal experience, and many physicians I have known uh, personally do that because, of course, you're busy. Physicians can make significant amounts of money in in certain cases. And uh, if you're not sure where to put them because you don't have a financial plan, uh, it just sits there and accumulates. And uh, you really need to deploy those funds. So I'll stop there. No, that's fantastic advice. Uh, guilty as charged. In fact, as you were speaking, I'm like, I think that 1% number sounds awfully familiar to me. <laughs> and that is terrifying. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, the the leaving money sitting in a checking or savings account, you know, we are, uh, doctors are, um, I think that we're notoriously bad risk takers, right? Like we want to be secure. And sometimes it feels good to know you have 
a year worth of your expenses in a checking or savings account when really that is absolutely not an efficient way to use your money. That was an excellent bit of advice. Um, so you've all, your book is called Pillars of Wealth, an initiative empowering doctors to make uh, better personal finance decisions. This is amazing, amazing information. Besides reading your book, what can doctors do? Where can we learn more? Are you still doing workshops? Yes, absolutely. So I'm answering your first question first. I, I am doing workshops. I do them for undergraduate students, uh, undergraduate medical students, uh, residents, oh. fellows, faculty, uh, also for nurses and uh, DMPs at, at Hopkins. Uh, we also do this for PhDs across the entire university. And I also do this outside the university. So at uh, corporate retreats, offsites, uh, financial wellness conferences, physician wellness conferences, and so on. Um, so yes, the, the the I've been involved in doing a lot of uh, that type of activity. And um, now I've lost track of the first part of your question. So I'm going to ask you to please repeat that. So no, I was mentioning your book. So obviously hmm. getting your book, reading your book, that's a good uh, good baseline, I guess. And then just really learning more about the financial aspect of being a physician. We spend so much time, you know, working on our empathy and working on our patients and, you know, working on the medicine. There's so much to keep up with. Medicine changes constantly um, that I think it's easy just from a time management standpoint to neglect our, not just our personal finances, but our practice finances, which ultimately impact our personal finances. It's critically important. Um, Yuval, thank you so much for your time. Is there any last thoughts you want to leave our listeners with, whether they're doctors or patients that are just kind of curious about what doctors struggle with? Any last words of advice? Uh, well, I think from the uh, practice perspective, I would say it's really important to know where the patients are going to come from. Are, are they going to be mm. referred to you by hospitals, by uh, by other physicians, other private practices? Are you going to find them through social media? Will they find use through social media? So that is very important for a private practitioner. And as you correctly pointed out, that all feeds into our, our personal finances as well. So I think that would be a, a useful final thought to end on. Mm, very good. I am definitely going to ask you to come back, Val, because I feel like every thing we talked about, we could break down into a separate episode. There's so, so much information. Thank you so much for our listener, listeners. Uh, Dr. Barr-Orr's book and contact information will be in the show notes. Uh, thank you again so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Yval. I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Business of Caring with Dr. Christine Meyer. Have you learned a lot by running your own business as a doctor or healthcare provider? Perhaps you're a physician, entrepreneur in training, or someone who has aspirations to own their own business in patient care. We want to hear from you. Join us as a guest on our show. If you'd like more information on today's episode or how to contact Dr. Meyer, visit us online at christinemeyermd.com or send us an email at christine at christinemeyermd.com.